This week, we are speaking with Jeremy Howard. Uh, Jeremy is one of the co-founders of Fast.ai. Um, this is a kind of a online educational institution where they offer courses, particularly in deep learning um, and some kind of uh, machine learning subspecialities. Um, they're really interesting and I'm really impressed with uh, how much they engage with kind of accessibility and making sure that um, it's not just kind of white guys in Silicon Valley having access to these cutting edge tools, but they really try to bring it out to domain experts, whether that's in medicine or history or, or whatever. Um, and uh, Jeremy has a kind of a very interesting kind of uh, non-traditional history um, going back. He's actually one of one of the kind of uh, early pioneers in fastmail.com, um, the email provider. Um, as well as he did 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 a bunch of work uh, leading up Kaggle, um, which is a kind of uh, competition site for machine learning. Um, uh, he had a lot to say in terms of um, kind of lessons for um, people studying these disciplines, um, as well as just kind of students in general and how to kind of uh, progress in um, in your learning. Uh, and it's a great kind of way to round up this um, uh, series of um, episodes that we've had on technology. Matt, do you have any kind of uh, wider takeaways from this season? Oh, I, you know, uh, if it's the uh, mutual admiration and uh, self-congratulatory society, I think we did a great job, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I think we engaged a bunch <laughs> of, you know, the, the gamut of people. You know, I, I didn't think, something I did like is we didn't shy away at all. Uh, went straight down into the weeds and, and tried to get down and dirty with um, folks and, and really sort of nitpick some, some very big specifics and um, as well as go straight to the higher level concepts so of like, where is this all going? What does it mean? Um, and, you know, I, one of our recurring conversations in a lot of these episodes is, you know, what, what should people be doing? Should people be learning all of these things? And so, um, yeah, I like how this season came together. Um, what about you? Uh, yeah, I really like the kind of the the ongoing theme of education running through it, which was somewhat unexpected. Um, uh, I guess, you know, we as people asking the questions helped squeeze <laughs> that in. But um, it was interesting that everyone sort of seemed to have a kind of um, an opinion on this. And um, uh, and also just there's that kind of meta level of the fact that uh, in various various of these episodes, it's the computers that are kind of teaching themselves things. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Um, so next season, what have we got coming up? Yeah, it's, that's a wrap. Uh, next season we're going for music. So season four will be music. Uh, if any of our listeners for people, artists, musicians, so on, um, anyone involved in that sphere, of course, uh, let us know and love to, uh, explore, um, our options for putting today, putting together our, uh, our list and, um, yeah, I think uh, I'm excited to get back to that. You and I both have backgrounds um, in music from, you know, our youth, and uh, it'll be exciting to dive back into that. And um, I'm sure we'll find all sorts of uh, themes. And like you just said, I'm sure the, the concept of education will be uh, pretty consistent throughout that one as well. And as always, uh, if you enjoyed these episodes, uh, please like, share them, spread them on the internet to leave comments on iTunes, these kinds of things. Uh, they all help other people find the show in the future. Uh, and also it's just nice for our egos. To <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. Um, so I guess firstly, maybe just the kind of the, the easy question, maybe you could just introduce yourself and your, your background a little bit for, for people listening. Sure. Um, 
So I'm Jeremy Howard. Uh, currently, I'm a researcher at Fast.ai, which is a research lab specializing in making deep learning more accessible. Uh, I guess uh, if I switch to strategy consultant at McKinsey and Company, and the path from there to here has been kind of three roughly decade-long pieces, a little bit less, of uh, management consulting and then um, kind of general entrepreneurship and then machine learning specialization. Um, so my most recent company I started was called Analytic, which was the first company to apply deep learning to medicine, um, or at least to specialize in it. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a couple of companies in, in email and insurance pricing and was um, president of a company called Kaggle, which is uh, the largest um, platform for machine learning, I guess, or maybe even data science more generally. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you kind of got involved in technology, I guess? Like, was this something which you could have predicted from early on with these kinds of things that you were always interested in or, yeah? You definitely could have predicted that. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing on this podcast because all of your other people you talk to are very educated and I'm not educated at all. Uh, my total education is one philosophy major, Bachelor of Arts, in which I didn't actually turn up to any lectures. Um, so I, and I, a lot of that was because I was always very interested in playing with computers. Um, so back in high school, I had no real strong interest in math. Um, but uh, at some point in like year 11, one of the teachers showed us this thing called a spreadsheet. Because like he showed us in an hour how to do things that none of us could have possibly done otherwise. And I just thought, well, we've just wasted the last, you know, 10 years of our education learning stupid stuff when we could have just been using the spreadsheet thingy. So I spent a lot of time learning to use a spreadsheet um, and largely thanks to that, actually got the highest grade in our high school in math, which was probably the most academically strong school, at least in the state. So that was weird like math. Uh, even started doing some consulting. Uh, turned out the, the people who lived across the road, one of them was a, a management consultant. I'd never heard of management consulting before and discovered that I could create these um, st statistical measures that he hadn't found anybody who could do it. And again, I thought this was all pretty weird because I didn't know math and wasn't interested in it. Um, so yeah, so I joined McKinsey when I was 18 basically on the back of that um, kind of what I would consider today to be extremely basic knowledge of kind of Microsoft Access, which had just come out in Microsoft Excel, but it was stronger than anybody else, at least in McKinsey, Australia. So, so my management consulting career was largely everybody else in the company interviews and me doing it by data analysis. So um, although I didn't have any particular training 
I didn't have any training. I was all self-taught, most of it from books with names like Learn Microsoft Excel in 24 Hours or whatever. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was using Solver in Microsoft Excel, which I later in my life learned was something called linear programming uh, to optimize things. And I was using, you know, correlation and regression. Again, Just I just knew them as menu commands in Excel. I didn't really know what they were. Um, so, yeah, and then by the time I kind of started my own companies, again, they were, I kept them extremely small by, by automating things and by using data analysis. Um, uh, I mean, if, if you had to compare, um, uh, I guess, kind of the, the, the kind of the opportunities and the kinds of things that one could as a kind of technologically interested kid um, back when you were growing up versus someone growing up now, I mean, obviously there's somehow a kind of uh, digital literacy, which as you kind of hinted at, is is kind of far more broadly spread nowadays. But are, are there things that that you kind of had to struggle with um, when you were growing up that kind of taught you things that people wouldn't be exposed to now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. There's There's two things pushing in different directions. On the one hand, the bar for you know, uh, can do stuff with numbers on computers was so extraordinarily low then that people thought I was some kind of genius for stuff which today would be considered, you know, very, very simple. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, certainly at a high school, um, I was very much under the impression that I didn't have any useful skills or interests because the idea of like uh, spreadsheet modeling as something that would be useful or, you know, SQL as something that would be useful going into university. That's why I did philosophy, because I thought like I don't have any useful skills or interests, so I might as well pick the least useful uh, major I can come up with because <laughs> right. I don't care about any of the, you know, the real jobs like medicine or law or whatever. So it was definitely a, um, I was going to use the word lonely, but it wasn't lonely. I mean, it was great. I was surrounded by really cool people at McKinsey who appreciated what I was doing from the age of 18. It's that I didn't have any peer group, you know. So it's definitely much easier now in the sense that, the, you know, you can surround yourself with like-minded people if you're interested in using data analysis to solve interesting problems. Mm-hmm. And is there some kind of, I mean, because from from the way you explained it, a lot of uh, a lot of this kind of learning essentially was kind of self-teaching uh, in a way and self-learning and you had to kind of, well, um, figure things out for yourself. Does that, yeah. um, uh, is what you're doing with Faster AI uh, and you kind of the courses there and so on, is that part of that general mission? Is it kind of, kind of enabling people to be able to do what, what you did like is also is, is that self-learning kind of a, a core part of fast ai yes it is a core part of fast ai i mean I, I think the philosophy of what we're trying to do is certainly formed by that experience of being somebody who um didn't particularly fit in anywhere and uh you know i um 
Yeah, I guess I was always kind of looking for needed to prove myself, and um, so with fast AI, our uh, you know our target audience really is people who have interesting and useful problems to solve, um, have a feeling that using AI might be a useful way to do that, um, but don't have a kind of or machine learning or whatever, you know. Um, this history of kind of seeing that there are lots of smart, thoughtful people. The target audience for fast.ai is um, kind of all of the people I came across in my career who are working in extremely diverse industries and roles and geographies <coughs> who are smart and passionate and working on interesting and important problems, but don't necessarily have any particular background in computer science or math or whatever. Right. Found there's a there's a huge um, kind of snobbishness in this field of machine learning that most people in it have an extremely homogenous background. They tend to be young white males who studied computer science at one of a small number of universities in America or Europe. And so you kind of see this incredibly powerful tool being deployed in this very naive and kind of tedious way. Um, they, they just don't the idea that working in social sciences or politics or activism or the law or whatever might be just as smart as them and just as able to understand AI right. as them. They just have a different background. So it kind of needs, I guess, a slight outsider like like I am and like my partner Rachel is to um to show to show that this is true, that that, that these people are perfectly capable of wielding this tool. You just have to give them the the expertise to do so. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of angles. I'm kind of interested to 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 dive into that. But I mean, um, where where how how do you reach that expertise? I guess is is, is the kind of the, the starting point. I know I know you have this kind of um, top down uh, approach versus a kind of more traditional bottom up approach where you mm. you know um from 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 the very beginning of your course you get people doing things with things rather than mm. tinkering with um you know syntactical fun fundamentals or or whatever um why why did yes yes exactly i mean why why did you come to 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 kind of to take that approach in, in how you teach things um well i mean um we're a research lab so what we do is we research things. Um, and so one of the things we researched was learning theory, uh, human learning theory. And uh, it's very clear that humans on the whole learn best when they have plenty of content, uh, plenty of opportunity to practice. Um, and the standard bottom-up approach where you start with underlying is it's a very lazy shortcut for a teacher um, it, it doesn't at all link into what we actually know 
from academic research is how humans best learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the kind of the the simplest and most brainless way to teach a, a topic. So that's really why is that we we, we know from uh, the research that's out there that, that this is best pick up uh, a topic. And this is like AI opportunity to use this approach because it's it's so its applications are so interesting and broad and powerful. Uh, so we we get this lesson one to a point where they can actually use AI to do like ex- uh, things that will ast- astonish uh, themselves and their colleagues. Um, and that that's how you get people practicing. Um, one of one of our favorite um, educational researchers is a guy called uh, David Perkins. Uh, from Harvard, who has a fantastic uh, idea he calls whole game, teaching the whole game, um, which is this idea of like, if you're going to teach somebody baseball, you don't first of all teach them um, the the kind of the physics of a parabola of a ball falling through space or teach them the kind of the, the friction involved in how to thread, thread a needle to sew a baseball or, you know... Um, you you take them to a baseball game and you say this is baseball and this guy throws it and this guy hits mm-hmm. it okay mm-hmm. now let's start playing baseball or with music you don't teach somebody music by first of all explaining the you know the theory of fifths and then explain how mm-hmm. waves you know can can intersect to create different waveforms and uh, uh, and learn twelve years of theory you say hey let's listen to some music. Mm-hmm. All right, this is a musical instrument. Try hitting it here and see what happens. So for some reason, the kind of STEM fields have on the whole gotten away with kind of shoddy slack teaching methods um, uh, where we expect the student to do the work of kind of sticking with it for 10 years and putting it all together. Um, and I don't know why that's about how we need to turn everything in this in this top-down way that we know works and that we that we already use for things like music and sports. Um, so, where does a kind of a the, the kind of the idea or the concept of kind of fundamentals come into this? I mean, um, uh, at some level, um, uh, you know, even even in something like. Um, uh, Kind of learning uh, machine learning techniques and so on there are some kind of things which are slightly more fundamental and more important for kind of uh, your kind of longer term understanding versus things which are just passing fads or whatever um like how, how does that fit into a, to a kind of top top down approach um well it's critical um and and it and it kind of fits in very nicely so a lot of the research we do is what I would call curation. It's basically figuring out what really works and what are the best practices and what are the kind of key pieces that make that happen. And so what what we teach, not how to do things that other people have built, but on the whole, it's like it's stuff that that we've built, or at least that we've put together out of other people's building blocks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've discovered that the most important 
concept in practical AI is learning. refers to um, basically taking a model that somebody else has created and uh, fine-tuning it for your task. And it turns out that this is the most important thing by far for actually getting AI to work in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that's what we focus on from lesson teaching is, is founded on understanding how to apply transfer learning effectively. Um, uh, and in in other courses, whether they be, you know, kind of master's level or boot camp level, no one else does this um, because I just, I think people kind of just teach a list or a menu of everything that they know rather than really trying to. Um, so you kind of, you recently kind of rolled out the, the kind of a, a new or a, um, um, uh, I guess a kind of semi kind of for the moment definitive version of kind of your Python framework. And I listened to a kind of an interview with you recently where you said that your aspiration is to make it so that using deep learning doesn't require coding per se, but rather, I guess, it's kind of sufficiently abstracted away from that part of the process. Is that right. um, is that kind of a, the, a medium-term vision, a long-term vision? Could you talk a little bit about this kind of balancing act between um, you know being in the weeds versus abstracting away so that you're dealing in more kind of... Uh, wider concepts yeah yeah um it's a medium-term vision so at the moment our um we're extremely dissatisfied with our with our current courses which is to say that our first course takes about 70 hours of work and you're not even able to start it until you've had at least one year of coding experience Mm -hmm. and so to me uh, and like and and at the end of that you you will be Put the work in, you will be a world class. In some sense, I'm proud of it because we we take people much further than previously was possible in, in less time and with less prerequisites. But at another level, that's a very long way from the goal. You don't need to be able to code, and you can start doing useful stuff with spending an hour reading an instruction manual. So uh, to get there, we set ourselves this. Um, this goal that each year we will try and get to the point where the course covers twice as much as the previous year uh, with half as much code and twice the accuracy and twice the speed. And so far, we've been successful at doing that three years running. And so, the, you know, the hope is that in another three years, you know, because we're now, we're now down to five lines of code, um, then it'll kind of be five lines, three line, <laughs> one line. At the point right. it's one line of code, you can replace that with a button. Um, and so it's all about like the curation is really important because we, each line of code we remove is a choice that the user no longer has to make. You know, it's one less concept they have to understand. It's one more thing the computer's doing for you. And so theoretically, and I think this should happen in practice, um, Machine learning should be a much easier way of using a computer than programming because it's all about mm-hmm. giving the computer examples of what you want and it learning how to do what you need. And so there's no there's no fundamental reason why that should require any lines of code. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where we're trying to get to. But I mean, there's a kind of, uh, I guess, a way of thinking about problems as well, which somehow isn't necessarily something which comes naturally. 
In terms of using machine learning, you mean? Yes, yes. In terms of just how to, yeah, how how to kind of process this stuff through through the pipeline. Yeah, somehow. yeah, yeah. So um, absolutely, and and a lot of that will be kind of fairly domain specific. So the, in the right. future, I would hope our courses are more like, you know, um, augmenting radiology with AI, or you know automating your paralegal processes with AI mm-hmm. or whatever. And they're kind of things that's, that are kind of written jointly with and entirely for domain experts. And um, it's all about like, um, hey, here's, here's how to kind of ingest the data that is specific to your field. And here's how the models will kind of tell you what they found. And here's how you can interpret that. And so here's how a, a domain expert can can interact with that system to to leverage their expertise and the and the computer's capabilities at the same time. Um, so we have kind of big data and kind of this kind of large scale stuff, which which I think um, uh, the kind of tools that, that you're kind of dealing with are useful for. And then we have these kind of smaller scale, you know, n equals one experiments and so on going on that. That, that various people can try and, and you know maybe this is closer to kind of the original ideas around quantified self-movement and so on which of course have become much bigger and different since since that was originally um uh originally kind of first um uh, first discussed or, or kind of first a thing and i mean where where do you see the interesting point in in all of this a, lo- a lot of your work is at the kind of the bigger data end of the spectrum but does this uh, mean no it's not really um, uh-huh. uh, I've done some work at that end of the spectrum just in order to show people, um, hey, you can do, uh, you can get world-class, you know, and in fact, beat the state-of-the-art handily at the big end of the, sta- mm-hmm. the spectrum, even mm-hmm. if you have very few resources. So we showed how to beat Google and Intel at, um, at neural net training, you know, using $40 worth of compute um, hired for you know uh, from from a cloud provider so so we, we've done a bit of that but it's definitely not the focus the focus for me is n equals 100 um, mm-hmm. where n is not the number of people but the number of data points right so it should be extremely relevant to to individuals um, and so the kind of stuff uh, I want to enable people to do is to like for example take their old family photo albums and train a model with just their photos that can learn to make them, you know, high resolution, clear mm-hmm. and crisp. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, an individual lawyer who's involved in one court case to be able to, you know, feed in a hundred examples of things that are or are not legally discoverable in this case and have it automatically process the rest of the documents for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like that N equals a hundred point is the really interesting point because it's the one where you know, lots of normal people doing lots of normal tasks can get a hundred examples of something that they want to do. And certainly for like quantified self, you could absolutely do that. Um, You know, I was uh, very interested in quantifying my learning of Chinese. So I kind of, you know, started tracking my daily progress with, with learning that and, you know, did some simple statistical analysis to figure out what kinds of things allowed me to learn better or worse. Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff we would love everybody to be able to do. 
And I mean, is this, um, do you see this all as a kind of um, uh, kind of uh, did almost kind of becoming part of the kind of a d digital literacy that people should be expected to at least have some kind of concept of how things how things work in some sense or is this still yeah. al always going to be kind of a, a, a um, somewhat kind of a, a minority group of people who, who, who are uh, toggling these kind of things I think it'll be one of the the two most important skills over the next decade or two um, uh, you know the idea of how to um, work as a domain expert to provide appropriate data to a machine learning system and interpret the kind of results of those learnings in a way appropriate to your work um, is just, yeah, it's something which if if you don't know how to do it, uh, you're going to be totally obsolete because, I don't know, like if you're a radiologist, for example, you're, you know, who's doing specializing in looking at chest CTs and you, you know, your average kind of, kind of the average chest CT interpretation time at the moment is about 12 minutes. Um, you can practice all your life and, you, you know, your speed doesn't get a lot better. Your accuracy improves quite a bit though. Um, but then somebody else is using a deep learning system, which means that they only have to look at three slices on average per CT rather than you looking at 300 slices per CT, uh, you know, they're just going to be faster and, and, right, and more accurate. Right. And and they're also, like, not only are they getting better, but they're getting their computer to get better because they keep, keep feeding back information about, like, mm -hmm. which bits did they find useful and which bits didn't they find useful and so forth. So um, I, I think it's a, yeah, absolutely critical skill. So is that somehow a corrective then? Because, I mean, I, I think I, I if I kind of picked up from what you were saying, like the important thing there is that you have domain experts who are then bringing these skills to bear rather than AI experts who are then kind of for hire moving around between various right. industries. Right. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think AI expertise of itself ought to be a particularly widely useful skill in the medium term because um, you know the idea will be to ab abstract away the vast majority of that and the only time you would need a um, we'll put it this way um, back in the early days of the commercial internet um, being an internet expert was extremely useful and you could have a job as an internet expert and be in a company of internet experts and kind of sell yourself as being an internet expert company. Um, today, very, very few people do that because on the whole, the internet is what it is and there's just a kind of relatively small percentage of people who actually have need such a level of expertise that they can actually go in and change the way your router operates and uh, need to pull apart TCP IP packets and whatever else. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we're going to see the same thing happen with with AI. Um, just like with the internet now, you could be an expert at, you know, digital logistics supply chains in the book industry. Um, uh, so you're kind of an internet expert, but you're really a domain expert of how to use the internet for a particular thing. Um, that's That's where things will head. 
Um, so I wanted to ask you as well about your your experience kind of running the this kind of education experience, this course that you run online, um, as well as kind of teach in person um, uh, in the US. Like what what's your experience been um, uh, with that? Do you feel that this is the future of education? Do you have, you know, what have you learned from this experience? I, I sure hope it is. Um, you know, I care a lot about accessibility and the fact is that not everybody can go to Stanford or Harvard, you know, um, uh, or to put it another way in a medical context, it's been, uh, uh, calculated by the world economic forum and BCG that it'll take about 300 years to train enough (laughs) doctors to meet the needs of the developing world. So, uh, the current system is just not adequate, and it and it's also extremely unfair. You know, it means that the only people who have the opportunities are the ones who can create those opportunities to go to these top schools, which, mm-hmm. on the whole, the vast majority of people not not everybody, but the vast majority of people that go to these schools are you know massively overrepresented by people with privileged backgrounds. So, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, we absolutely see people coming through our course who who have t- who have told us they absolutely otherwise would not have had any such experience. Um, they're often people from parts of the world where the average salary is less than $10 a day, uh, where they know nobody else in their village or surrounding neighborhood who has any interests in kind of data analysis, um, but they kind of end up uh, demonstrating their expertise and have been hired by hot startups and um, you know because why why shouldn't you be able to learn online uh, it, it's not it, it's definitely harder in the sense that when you're surrounded by like-minded people at a university you kind of have all that that kind of motivation and feedback and joint study but increasingly People are finding ways to do that in their own communities. So, for example, in Bangalore, uh, there are 4,000 AI students who have formed a a, a huge study group together. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Ditto in Lagos, there's something like 2,000 students now. Um, uh, So it's it's really cool to see these... uh, pockets of interest kind of popping up organically. And so this is why um, we, you know, we, we do four things at Fast.ai. We do software development, um, uh, research, education, and then the fourth we haven't touched on, but I will now is community building. Uh, and that's mainly done through building online communities to make it easy for people to find each other um, because it really helps the learning experience if you can find like-minded people to, to study and develop yeah. with. Yeah. Um, we've seen that in kind of domain areas as well. There's a lot of radiologists who have gone through our course now when they've kind of built their own, um, yeah, uh, American Council of Radiology now has a kind of AI mm-hmm. journal reading group, um, which is, I think, entirely run or largely run by people that were previously our students. Um, so people can kind of f- create these um, yeah, these, these groups and, and, and go from being students together to being practitioners together. But I mean, the, the 
in, in, in some senses, um, ready to reach that point where you're where you're able to take your course, like there are a whole bunch of things that kind of had to have gone right already. I mean, I, I recently had the experience. Um, so I do a lot of my research work and my background is in Afghanistan. And I recently was watching someone kind of starting to take their first steps, um, learning some kind of uh, playing around with code and Python and so on. And there were all sorts of things, you know, from the language and the English used and the way the course was was put together to, um, to just kind of uh, presumptions about things in their education yep. and so on that this person would have had to... to yeah, I, I just kind of... Um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of we've got a long way to go. So many barriers there. Yeah, yeah, we've got a long way to go, um, and so we kind of do what we can with what we have. So, for example, we've uh, created um, kind of separate online communities for for different languages to help people find other mm-hmm. people that speak their native language, yep. um, and so that they can kind of have discussions and say, "Hey, Jeremy, when Jeremy said that, what was he saying?" Uh, some people are kind enough to volunteer to translate and caption the mm-hmm. videos into other languages, um, yeah. which is helpful. Um, but in the end, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you need a computer and you need um, you need the time <laughs> to be right. able to actually right. do this. Uh, and uh, at least enough support from your kind of family or workplace or whatever that they're not telling you that, I don't know, for example, um, we've heard from from um, women in some parts of the world that the fact that they're studying fast AI is considered, you know, extremely socially inappropriate and mm-hmm. embarrassing mm-hmm. for their family, and um, which I'm sure Afghanistan is just such a place. And if I think about it, actually, I, mm-hmm. Afghanistan is certainly one of the places where this this program is not taken off and really reflects the extreme lack of opportunity in that particular location. Um, but we're certainly seeing people in, you know, um, um, uh, young women, for example, in places like Bangladesh, where where this really is not the kind of thing young women are expected to do, uh, doing it nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, hopefully, they will become role models for the next generation, and uh, gradually things will change. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about language learning, since actually it was your original talk as you mentioned a little bit earlier on kind of Anki and uh, Chinese and so on that spurred kind of so many discoveries for me and got me interested in spaced repetition and all sorts of things oh great so um, do you have any tips for people learning languages Um, well I started learning Chinese not because I had any interest in Chinese or languages but rather because I was such an incredibly bad language learner at high school. I did six months of French. I got 28% and I quit. <laughs> and um, so when I wanted to really dig deep into machine learning, I felt one of the things that would be useful to better understand was human learning. So I kind of used myself as a subject, uh, you know, a kind of a, a hopeless subject. And I thought if I can come up with a way that even I can learn language, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And then to make sure that was challenging enough, I tried to pick the hardest language I could. So, you know, according to the CIA guidelines, uh, Arabic and Chinese are the hardest for Westerners to pick up. Right. So I picked Chinese. Um, and 
then spent, yeah, kind of three months studying learning theory and language learning theory, and then three months writing software to try and kind of create something that could leverage that understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very interesting process. And I think the main thing I'd say is it turns out that even I can learn Chinese. Um, <laughs> you know, after a year of this, uh, this is by no means a full-time thing. It was kind of, you know, an hour or two a day. Um, you know, I went to China and went to the kind of top language learning university and found myself put in based on my entrance test into a group of people who were all PhD students in Chinese. Right. Uh, and I kind of thought, wow, that's crazy because I am, you know, clearly terrible at language. So, so just studying smart is important. I definitely think there's no such thing as people who are good at language or bad at language, just as I don't think there are people who are good at math and bad at math. Um, but it's all about, yeah, it's all about how you do it. So you mentioned spaced repetition. I mean, that's just such an easy thing that anybody can do. You can download Anki right, right. for free and you can just start using it. And it's like like the only way that you could possibly not learn your vocab despite using Anki is if you don't use it. Like if, if you use it, right. it, it, it's impossible not to learn it because it, it, it makes sure you do. Um, and if you're not using Anki, then you're literally like many orders of magnitude less likely to remember a piece of vocab. And so you come away like I did thinking that you can't learn language. And then once you learn vocab, um, the rest is, you know, really not that hard, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'd say like, don't try to learn grammar, but instead spend all of your time reading, which obviously at at first that means reading kind of kindergarten level stuff, but just reading nonetheless. Um, There's some fantastic series of books actually for Chinese. Um, There must be similar ones for other languages where you, you actually read kind of classic actual books, but they've been rewritten into a kind of version of your, your language that's appropriate for level one learners, level two learners, whatever. Um, so I just read a lot of those, listened to lots of podcasts. Um, the best was this uh, one that I don't think they're around anymore, but they were called Pop-Up Chinese. And they they basically seem to know all the tricks for, um, for learning um, because the human brain responds best to things which are um, surprising uh, and or sexy uh, and or disgusting, mm-hmm. uh, 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 high, highly emotional, um, you know, basically uh, uh, stories. And so every pop-up Chinese episode was uh, something where they had these professional voice actors massively hamming up absolutely hilarious scripts that were often full of, you know, poop jokes or, mm-hmm. you know, right. <laughs> um or, or, you know, or brain-eating zombies or whatever, uh, and uh, often involved mock celebrities. And, like, it, it really helped to... Um, so they kind of ended up being in my Yankee flashcards. So it's very hard to also to forget a word when when you remember the first time you saw that word was that bit in that podcast where you were totally grossed out by it, you know. You right, remember right, it forever. Right, right. So I, I, still re- I still remember the Chinese word for... 
a plunger for a toilet very well. Uh, you can imagine that it came up in a particularly <laughs> gross part of a, a podcast. <laughs> um, it's it's always been kind of slightly, uh, still kind of slightly perplexing to me why spaced repetition and tools like Anki aren't really more widespread and widely used, given the kind of the, just the time saving that they give you. And I don't know. When I first started using Anki, I felt like I'd gained a superpower. And yeah, absolutely. You know, just become this kind of evangelist for it, but it's still. And I actually, you know, yeah. I actually gave a talk. I mean, of all the things I've done at the World Economic Forum to all kinds of highbrow audiences, <laughs> the by far that made the biggest impact was this like little five-minute talk I gave about the importance of learning how to learn, and mm-hmm. I talked about you know, Anki and spaced repetition is kind of the main example of that. And I said, like, you know, if if you're not spending a significant part of your early learning learning how to learn, then you're basically going to be at a disadvantage to those mm-hmm. that did for, mm-hmm. for that entire learning journey. So, like, spending 12 years at school learning things, but nobody ever taught you how to learn is right. just the stupidest thing I could imagine. And uh, yeah, so many high-powered people came, you know, ran up to me in the hallways for the rest of that meeting, kind of saying like, tell me more. I, this is, I've never heard of this before, but I have to do this. So like, there's so much appetite for it. But um, uh, And in fact, um, Coursera's most popular course is their learning how to learn course. Right. So yeah, I don't Barbara, know why actually, it's yeah. not finding its way into normal normal schools and universities because it's a lot of appetite and a lot of interest and a lot of success um uh, this is going to be kind of of vague but are are there any other tools or habits or workflows or mental models or frameworks and things that you find particularly important on the level of kind of spaced repetition in in your work or in your life um yeah uh i'd say the other main one is exercise, um, which, I, again, I don't feel was ever explained to me clearly when I was growing up. Exercise always seemed like this annoying thing, which <laughs> was never fun and, you know, got in the way of more interesting things and was mainly appreciated by people who were very different to me. Um, so now, uh, and, and more generally, the importance of kind of lifestyle balance and rest. So now, you know, now I know that on average the uh, top performers in nearly any kind of endeavor you can think of, uh, on average do four hours of practice of that thing per day. Right. Uh, Whether it be violin or running or chess or whatever. And then... um, the rest of the day, so for example, the difference between the most brilliant violinists and the merely exceptional violinists, um, one of, you know, it, it's it's hard to see that many differences. But one key difference is is that most of the exceptional violinists have a one-hour nap in the afternoon. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, again, it kind of feels like the opposite of everything we learnt at school. We shouldn't, you know, don't sit down. Um, to work, don't work all day, um, 
pace yourself mm-hmm. when you're not working. Be explicit and thoughtful about what you're doing instead and where possible try to make that something where you're running around or doing yoga or listening to music or something, you know, explicitly restorative. Um, so, I mean, that's something which was forced on me. I had a, a very, uh, very severe uh, occupational overuse syndrome, um, which left me unable to work for six months over mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it forced me to kind of start practicing yoga and do running and stuff. Yep. But since that time, I've realized it's now definitely one of my uh, superpowers along with spaced repetition. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, that wasn't what I would have expected you to say, but yeah. <laughs> I'll mention one more. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, which is taking notes. So when I look at the difference between the exceptional performers I know and the, you know, average, um, all of the exceptional ones take lots of notes. They always have a notebook with them or type into their phone as soon as they start hearing something interesting. Um, or else the kind of less exceptional folks assume that they're going to remember or worse still, assume they're going to forget. <laughs> so, um, and so that's just I think, taking notes yep. versus taking no notes, not any in any particular yep, exactly. way. Exactly. So just in, in a regular conversation, you know, um, uh, uh, people often ask me, you know, how how do I solve this bug, or can you give me some advice on this or that, or what direction should I take? And I'll start talking, and um, the ones who have demonstrated exceptional outcomes in their life nearly always whip out a notebook and start writing down what I'm talking about and the ones who haven't don't and um, yeah I mean it's just such a clear and stark difference it's not like taking notes in class which I think is a stupid waste of time because everything you're being told hopefully either it's being videoed or it's in a book that has been provided to you or whatever so you should I mean, I don't see the point of going to the class at all, frankly. But if you are in the class, make sure you're getting doing something useful in it. Um, but I'm talking about, yeah, the, you know, having a to-do list and having a list of priorities and having a, you know, list of the things that were covered in that meeting that you right. wanted to make sure you got something of it. Or uh, it's just kind of like, don't rely on your brain for stuff that you could outsource. <laughs> <laughs> Detecting a theme there. Um, so, uh, so let's say you know you've you've lit the fire in the minds of someone listening to this podcast. Perhaps someone who works in some kind of far off place and has a whole bunch of data and so on, but they've never done anything with computers. They haven't done anything related to maths for years or decades. Um, how, how does this person begin? Well, the math bit doesn't matter. Um, you know, people often, very, very often ask, um, how do I learn enough math to start doing AI? And the answer is don't, you know, just start learning AI and when you need a piece of math, just learn it at the time. There's very, very, very little that you need. And um, at least in our course, we very explicitly teach you what you need when you need it. Um, or, well, we assume high school math. 
So if it's something that was in high school math, we'll kind of say like, okay, I'm assuming that you remember what a logarithm is. And if you don't, here's right. where you can go to remind yourself and here's how much you need to know about it. You know, but you could, you, you still can do the lesson and then go back and watch yeah. it again after you've kind of gone to Khan Academy or whatever. But the coding bits, the coding bits are a problem. Um, you know, to, to be really creative with computers still, you, there's, you have to code. Um, that's for now still the mm -hmm. primary way that mm -hmm. we can get them to do things that they didn't know how to do before. And, you know, hopefully in the next few years, that's going to go away and we will help it go away. But, um, it, it does take a solid year of practice, two or three hours a day to become a competent coder. So, um, the language you ought to learn is almost certainly Python if you're interested in data science and data analysis and deep learning. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know one of the much easier languages to learn. Um, but uh, yeah, you just got to put the time in. And I'll say like the 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 fourth thing I've noticed amongst and perhaps most important thing I've noticed amongst exceptional performers is uh, that they have a higher level of tenacity than the, everybody else. Mm -hmm. And the only reason you can't learn to code is if you stop, stop trying. Right. Yeah. You know, it, 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 plenty of parts of it are hard, um, but I've never found anybody who couldn't learn. Um, I've only found people who at some point chose to stop trying. Um, mm. and, and definitely if you're able to be tenacious enough to get to the point that you can write a useful piece of code from scratch um, then yeah learning learning deep learning will be uh, I would say not, neither no easier nor no harder than that it will be a, a similar level of challenge and a similar level hopefully of, of um, excitement once you get it working and you think this is a, a skill which for someone's long term is going to be really important going forward it's yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. I think there are two critical skills going forward. You know, pick one. One is kind of knowing how to use machine learning. Uh, and the other key skill is knowing how to uh, interact with and care for human beings. Um, because the latter one can't be replaced by AI, um, but the former one will kind of gradually replace everything else. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, uh, you've been very generous with your time. How can people stay in touch with your work, the work of Faster AI, uh, and so on, and keep up with, with what you're doing? Where can they find you online? Yeah, so um, uh, best way to keep up with what I'm doing day to day is to follow me on Twitter. I am Jeremy P. Howard. Um, if you're not on Twitter, you might be surprised to discover that the, um, the kind of machine learning Twitter community is extremely welcoming and has a lot of interesting dialogue going on um, and it's a great place to be um, and then yeah to follow what's happening with our courses and research and software development uh, you can go to fast.ai great thank you so much my pleasure <laughs>